Thanks for being here. Today is Teacher Appreciation Sunday. So I think back to all the teachers that I've had, uh, and the one that sticks out as I was looking forward to this week uh, was my sixth grade teacher. She was a very nice southern lady named Miss Brown. Uh, She was sweet. She spoke with an accent, which makes everything a little bit more warm. But she had that teacher moment where she can go from nice and friendly to I'm going to ruin your whole life right now with like that glare, that teacher glare that just strikes fear into everybody. And Mrs. Brown had a glare, but she also had a saying that honestly thoroughly confused me. So week one of school, I'm screwing around, which I'm sure that you like know at this point in my life, I'm going to talk a lot. I'm never going to stand still. And this is me in sixth grade. So I do something and she looks at me with the glare, like the nostrils flare out a little bit. The brow is furrowed. The voice is loud. And she says, do that one more time, which I didn't know what to do because doing that in the first place is what got me yelled at. So how am I supposed to do that one more time? And this went on for a few weeks. I do something. She said, do that one more time. She like looked down and scowl or look up and scowl. Where we're at today is going to be one of those moments where God looks at a certain group of people and says, you do that one more time. And something's going to happen. We're in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, We've been there for two weeks. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Right before you get to the the books that are named after people that we still use. Uh, There's a little bit of where you get to. If you can get to any of those books, uh, you're close. And uh, Habakkuk is... Habakkuk is a prophet for God. In those days, a prophet was somebody who speaks for God. God has a message that he wants to communicate to a group of people. The group of people uh, in this instance was the nation of Judah. And so Habakkuk is sent as God's microphone to to make a difference in the nation of Judah. And what's going on? Uh, This whole book starts not with God telling Habakkuk, hey, I want you to say something. But Habakkuk actually saying to God, God, I think you've fallen asleep at the wheel. There's something going on that's broken, and I think it needs to be fixed. And so what's going on is there's a group of people that knows what's God, what God says to do, knows how God tells us to live, and that's the Habakkuk's people, the nation of Judah, but they have totally abandoned that. And so Habakkuk, in very, at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, God, what's going on? And God says, I'm going to fix this, okay? You've brought something to me that needs to be fixed. I'm actually going to fix it, but I'm going to fix it in a way that you totally don't expect and don't know. And so often in our lives, we have things that happen to us where we say, okay, God, I want you to get involved, and God's action is not at all we would have expected. So week one, we talked about how that happens in our lives and that through everything, we can trust God, even if the road that we're going down is not something that we would expect. And so the the nation that God uses in this situation to judge the people of Judah is a country called Babylon. And Babylon still today is like synonymous with bad things. So Habakkuk is like, what's going on? You're going to judge a bad group of people with a worse group of people? God, this, this doesn't make sense. And so he poses another question to God. He says, if you're so good and so holy, how come there's brokenness in the world? And so God responds to that. It's something that we all ask at some point in our lives. Is God, if you can do anything, why do you let these things happen? And what we looked at is that when those things When dark things happen in our lives, God can use it as an opportunity to pull us to him. When our hearts are broken, God sees that as an opportunity to work in us and bring us closer to him. 
And so God responds to Habakkuk. And this week, God goes into teacher mode. It's that do that one more time moment toward the nation of Babylon, toward the people that had overtaken Judah and the people that had been used as an instrument of judgment against God's people. And so he goes into teacher mode. And what he says is a bunch of things that we can summarize into just three sentences. As a teacher, your job is like the job that we all take on is to make people remember things. And so what we're looking at today is God going into teacher mode to leave Habakkuk chapter 1 and leave Babylon and Judah with something that they can remember, go out and do so that they can ace the test. And for us, we're going to look at areas in each of our lives where there, where there are things we want God to speak into, things we want God to fix, things that we want to learn from God and let God make next week different from last week. And so this starts off in chapter 2, verse 2. This is the Lord talking to Habakkuk. He says, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner, runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end. It will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. He's saying teacher mode. These are three lessons of what God is saying. And the thing is for all of this, is there things that all of us are going to learn in our lives. We're either going to learn it the easy way or we're going to learn it the really, really difficult way. Right, this week at our, the building that we're moving into, uh, it's on Kings Canyon and Bergen. So if you leave here and you head east towards GB3, you turn left right, or turn right right after GB3. And that church there, uh, we own it. We're working on repairing it and building some new stuff because the bathrooms right now are really, really small. And that's really bad for a group our size. So we're building new bathrooms and kind of fixing a bunch of stuff. But one thing that left this week was the grand piano. It's this huge, massive piano that with everything else that we got going on stage, it would take up like 99.5% of stage and worship team would have to stand on top of each other. I asked Tim, he said he sweats too much for that to work. But today, or this week, the piano left. And I'm like, before... Before the piano movers got there, I got in there, and I'm like, okay, this thing looks heavy. It's big. If you want to insult somebody for running slow, you say, get the piano off your back. Uh, so I got on there, like, on the end of it. It's solid wood. I'm like, okay, I can, let's see what happens. So I got low, lifted it, and then tried to pick it up. That thing is beastly heavy. It did not move at all. So I thought, okay, what are the piano movers going to do? Uh, they showed up, and three guys who are about, like, normal size, a little bit bigger than me, but nobody had to turn sideways to walk through the door because their shoulders are so big. Three guys show up. What they do, they lean it to one side, they pull off the wheels, and then we've got a picture of it. They just put it on its side perfectly. Like, like they are professional piano movers. Now, run with the piano on your back. That looks like it could actually be pretty fast. Like, that is the easy way to move a piano. There are difficult ways, there are easy ways. And what we want to do with Jesus as our teacher is we want to learn the lessons that he has for us the first time. We're all going to make mistakes in life. There are all going to be things that each and every one of us screw up. But with Jesus as our teacher, we want to see those happen once, and then we walk away and we learn and we let God create new behaviors and new habits in our lives. So the first of those lessons that Jesus wants to teach us through Habakkuk chapter 2 is pride causes big problems. Pride causes big problems. The message about pride that's consistent through the Bible is that God fights against pride and God gives grace and, and God fights for humility. When we are humble, we invite the presence of God into our lives. There's a Puritan pastor centuries ago that says that pride is the sin that is pregnant with all other sins. 
Like you understand what that is. It's a sin that gives birth to everything else. And what that looks like in our own lives is us making ourselves number one in everything. That everything has to work out so that we achieve. We can never lower ourselves. We always have to be top. Everything always has to come out with us looking good. In verse 4, Habakkuk starts to go after this. Or God does through Habakkuk. God says, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. The first thing that happens when pride is running our lives is that we lose our direction in life. We lose our direction. When we trust ourselves to be number one in everything, that means we're constantly chasing other things in life. And our life is going to get crooked. God says if you put yourself second, not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less and think of other people more, so many things in life are going to straighten out. We have an inborn need and desire and drive in all of us to serve. This is inside of us. We see a disaster. We see something bad happen. And there's something in us. We don't get taught. It just happens that I want to go and I want to do something there to help. As we see stuff on TV for hurricanes and natural disasters, there's, thing, there's things in us that say, I want to go help that. I want to go fix that. Whatever way I can, I want to do something to help. As you walked in, you passed some signs that say, I'm in. And these are ways that you can get involved here at Sunnyside. And uh, on the sign-up sheets last week, my friend Nathan, whose picture is going to pop up behind me, uh, so if you've seen him before, he teaches in second service and he sits in first service. Uh, he signed up and he wrote his name, he wrote his number, and then above his name in big letters, he wrote, it's awesome and you should sign up too. Like, I think that's a great message to say because for all of us, there's that drive inside to get involved with areas that we can help out and do something to make a difference in our lives. And we can't do that if we're always number one. If we're always number one, we can't serve anybody. We can think of plenty of opportunities for other people to serve us, but we can't serve if we think we always need to be number one. So it loses our direction in life. Our life goes crooked. The second thing that happens is in verse 5. Let's check this out. Wealth is treacherous, and the arrogant are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave, and like death, they are never satisfied. The second thing that happens is that we lose our contentment. We lose the, the sense that, yeah, we're, we're good in life, that we're at peace with what we have and where we are. The first temptation given from the devil to people was to get dissatisfied with where we are. Third chapter in the Bible, the devil takes the form of a snake, shows up to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and says, if you do this, you will be like God. If you eat this fruit, you will no longer stay where you are. You will be like God. And so from there till now, we've been a trajectory of people who continue to make decisions based on our own lack of contentment. If we always need to be number one in everything, I am the king of this club. So if you think that I'm just like being mean, no, I'm president of this then we're never going to be content. We're never going to be okay with where we are, where, where, where God has us. It's one thing to want more. It's one thing to say, okay, God, I'm giving you my life. I want you to make something of it. But in that, we can have contentment at the rate that God is, is taking out our bad stuff, filling us with good stuff. We can be content about that. But when there's angst in our heart about us not having what other people have or what we see online or on our screen, that's going to be something that's going to cause big problems in our lives. Third thing about pride is it takes away our ability to love people. Second half of verse 5, it says, In their greed they have gathered up many nations and swallowed many people. 
And pride causes big problems because it, it means that we're going to be number one, which takes away our ability to love other people. And if we surround ourselves with only what we care about, eventually we're only going to be surrounded by ourselves. We surround ourselves by people that we care about and people who we serve. There's never going to be a point where, where everything falls apart and we're alone because we've invested in other people's lives. We've let our own lives be a conduit of blessing into other people's lives. That creates relationships that are bonds for a lifetime. But instead, if we're putting ourselves up as number one, eventually all we're going to be surrounded by is ourselves. So what's the opposite? If pride causes big problems, what's the second lesson? What's the other side of this that Jesus wants us to learn? And that is that other people matter. Other people matter. I mean, this is the way that Jesus teaches us how to live. The Old Testament has 619 commands in it. And there's one point where a lawyer walks up to Jesus and he says, okay, out of that 619, what's the one that I need to make sure that I keep? And Jesus says, okay, it's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second that is equally as important. That is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says it's equally important because other people matter. The difficulty in this is that we are naturally selfish creatures. And if you don't believe me, observe exhibit A. All right, last week I picked on little cute dogs. Next week, I'm, this week I'm picking on babies, okay? Babies are the most selfish people you will ever meet. And you don't remember how selfish you were because you don't remember things that far back. But think about it. If there's a 35-year-old who at the middle of the night wakes up and starts screaming until you give him a donut, you would kick that guy out of your house. Right? That's unacceptable. But with babies, it's like, I'll give you a pass. You can learn. You can't communicate. All you know how to do is scream. And if you wake up and you're dissatisfied, there's no going back to bed. No, you're going to make sure that everybody is awake until you're good. All of us start that way, but we shouldn't all stay that way. Okay, there's a lifelong pull for all of us away from selfishness and to selflessness. And that's what that's what God is talking about here as he goes after the nation of Babylon. These are people who will go in and totally terrorize and flatten a given city. They'll take all of their good stuff, leave them with absolutely nothing, and treat everybody from the top of this society to the bottom like they did not matter. And so God is going at them with a message that says that other people matter. And for us, we're not there, okay? No one has ransacked a whole entire city. But all of us are coming from our background of being babies and being totally selfish. And we're all on a journey towards selflessness. And so he says this, uh, verse 9. He says, What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly? You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. I love that line that, that we're going to build up our life because we can be insulated from other people and treat other people like they don't matter because we're going to have nothing in common with them throughout our whole life. We're going to have no like, relationships that are together built with other people who are different from us from our whole lives. One of the things that you can sign up for as you head out today are life groups. Life groups are where you get out of your protected nest, like is the image right here in this verse. You get out of your protected nest, and you get down in the midst of life with other people. And like as one person in our group used to say, uh, that life group is where you find out that everybody else is crazy, all right? 
because we think that we are the only one who has issues. We are the only one who things in life like are, are just crazy sometimes. You get around other people and you realize that we are all on the same track of going from not crazy or going from totally crazy to hopefully just less crazy in the future. It's the opposite of putting your nest far away where nobody can touch it. What happens in these groups is you meet people, you do life together, you go after God together, knowing that each and every one of us is coming from a place of brokenness and we're following Jesus the best that we can. Nowhere is that seen more than in marriage. So Anna and I, this, uh, this fall, we're leading a group on marriage because we have finished the book and we think it's a good book that we're going to go through on marriage. Not because we're perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but what we want as a church is for us taking every area of your life, and there's a bunch of different areas that we look at. We can say, man, we want to invest in making ourselves better, but we want to do that in community because that's where we can go farther. That's where we can invest and show love into other people's lives and really live the opposite of what the condemnation is here. You believe you're wealthful by security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. Man, I don't want to live that way. I want to show people that they matter more than just comfort and like safe distance, you know? That doing life together and doing life messy sometimes and doing life learning each other's crazy is a great way to do life. The second way that we see that other people matter is in verse 10. This is by... By the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and you have forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you, and the beams in the ceiling echo the complaint. He's saying this to the nation of Babylon hundreds of years ago, but for us as Christians, I think this is one of those things that cuts deep, because for us, when it talks about the name of your nation and the name that represents your power, for us, we have a name that, that's totally different from just your name or the fact that you're a Californian or you're American, and that's the name of Jesus, that everywhere we go, as soon as people know that we're Christians, we represent God, which means that if we're doing good things, it's like, yeah, they're a Christian, but if we're, if we're doing bad things, the things that we do actually reflect poorly on Jesus. And so I read that this week, and by the way that you've lived, you've shamed your name and you've forfeited your lives. Man, I think that, man, how many times have I done that to the name of Jesus? How many times have I run my mouth or I've been rude to people or I've been angry without reason in people's lives and I've shamed the name of Jesus? Jesus is my teacher. He's not going to crush me for doing that. What he's going to do is, and we'll look at this a little bit later, he's going to say, dude, you need to learn a lesson. And I want you to learn this lesson once, and I want you to walk away, and I want you to never do it again. But for us, the way that we live paints a picture of how people see Jesus because they know us. When Jesus was on earth, one of the names that was given to him by people who didn't like him was they said he was a friend of sinners. That meant that people like us who are broken and who have stuff in our lives that maybe isn't that great, we could come close to Jesus. We could come into relationship with Jesus, ask him to take it out of our lives. And in their minds, Jesus' proximity to broken people was a bad thing. But for us, that is our salvation and that is good news because it means that there's always hope in Jesus. For me, I want that to be said about my life that I'm a friend of sinners. I want my church to, to be characterized in that way, that we're a church that is the friend of sinners, which means there is no darkness too dark, there is no sin that is too bad, that Jesus can't come in and he can't cleanse us of it. And so as Christians, we let other people matter because the name that we bear as Christians is one of hope and one of forgiveness. And then verse 15 is the final, the final lesson that he has from. 
God says, what sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk? You force your cup on them so that you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, drink, and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment, and all your glory will be turned to shame. You'll cut down the forests, or you cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now you yourself will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, and now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside, and you filled the towns with violence. What's happening here is God saying everything that you've done to every other country that you've overtaken and left with absolutely nothing is going to be done to you. And you talk about mocking, about shame, about disgrace. And these things are things that Babylon has done to people and now it's going to be turned over back to them. For us as Christians, this hits us in a totally different way. Because when we sinned against God, when we told God, get out of my life, I'm doing this my way, whether through our words or through our actions, God didn't give us yet what we deserve. God gave us grace, God gave us mercy, God gave us forgiveness that we did not deserve. And so when we earned death, when we earned God's wrath, when we earned separation from God, through Jesus what we got was grace. We got forgiveness. We got mercy that's better than we deserve. We got an invitation into relationship with God. And for us as Christians, I think this is the way where this passage hits home because there are so many areas in our life where people who know us can deserve anger, can deserve judgment, can deserve like a one-footed get out of my life, get out of this relationship response from us. But our call, our challenge is to live like God in this, to grant forgiveness, to grant mercy. I was thinking about that this week, just, yeah, we're called to forgive and tell people I forgive you. It's a lot harder than to act like that the next day. It's a lot harder to continue to act and and extend that forgiveness when you talk about the person when they're not around. It's harder to continue that forgiveness as you see them again when you didn't expect to see them and all those emotions come back instantly. Other people matter because God showed us that we matter when we were far from him. And he closes with the third lesson, verse 20. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple and let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is there in charge. In all of this and everything is broken in pride bringing bad things and other people mattering in our lives because of the areas that they haven't. Where's God in this? Jesus is our teacher and we're the students. That's the third lesson. In all of this, Jesus is our teacher. No one, this is, this is the good news for all of us, okay? No one is supposed to show up on the first day of school knowing everything that they go through in the class. The purpose of being in school is to learn. And for us as Christians, the purpose for us following Jesus is for him to teach us. For him daily to come into our lives and say, you know what, this is something that you need to grow in. This is a mistake that you made yesterday and you need to make it right today. This is a dark spot that that I'm not just going to ignore. I'm not going to run from it because I'm holy and that area in your life is not holy. No, I'm going to run to it. And so as students of Jesus, what we do is we respond to his invitation to relationship with him. For us, that was given when we were at our worst. That's given by Jesus leaving heaven to come and live in a desert before there was air conditioning, to live among people who did bad things and, and made God look bad but to live among people and live without ever sinning so that in his death, he could make a way for people like us, people like you and me, to come into a relationship with Jesus. 
That's the good news that we, we aren't accepted by God by anything that we have ever done, but we are accepted by God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so as we bring our daily lives to him, I mean, that, that teacher-student relationship that begins when there's an initial time where you say for the first time, God, I'm giving you control of my life. I'm asking you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and lead me. When that happens, our sins are replaced with Jesus' perfection. He took on everything so we can take on all of his righteousness and all of his perfection before God. There's a moment when that happens, and that can happen for you today if it hasn't. But then there's the daily, there's the weekly surrendering of ourselves to Jesus. And that's how we're going to close today, is Jesus is our teacher. He's got things he wants to share to in, in us and lead us in. And for all of us, we've got areas to grow this week. And so our, the thing that we're going to close with today, the worship team's going to come up. We're going to play uh, another song. We're going to sing for a little bit. And it's going to be a chance for us to come to the front. You can sit, you can kneel, you can stand, you can do whatever you want. But there we're saying, Jesus, here's where I want to learn from you this week. Here's where I want you to take what's gone on, maybe for a day, maybe for a month, maybe for your whole life, and replace it with what you have for me. He's our teacher who wants to teach us what's right and lead us in that. He's not our butcher who's going to kill us for getting it wrong. And so today our response is to respond to Jesus, our teacher. Say, God, I want to walk away from pride if it's pride in your life. If it's anger, walk away from anger. But that's simply what we're going to say. God, I want to walk away from this, and I want you to lead me in whatever the opposite of that is. And that's our opportunity. That's our blessing of loving God. Let's stand and pray.